You're listening to the Owner Build podcast, where each week, Paul Hemming from C-Link interviews experts on how small and medium-sized developers can level up their business through intelligent construction management. Hello, and welcome to the Owner Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming, your host, Today is episode number 23, and it is our second edition of our Ask the Architect series. I'm pleased to say we are joined by a design professional whose unmissable soothing tones you will recognize from our previous Ask the Architect episodes. I'd like to welcome back Hugo McLeod from 1200 Works. How are you, Hugo? Hi, Paul. Yeah, good. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be back. You've been having a busy day by the sounds of it. Yeah, yeah, just because I'm a bit, a bit late, but um, yeah, tearing back from sight in Surrey. But yeah, back back here now. Excellent stuff. So for, for all of those who, who need reminding, 1200 Works are an award-winning architectural practice. Hugo is a partner there. And what we try and do with Hugo is just try and drill down into the deep, dark thinking of an architect's mind. So... <laughs> Strap in, guys. We're, we're, we're about to understand the dark arts at, at long last here again. Hugo, today I wanted to talk about the transition from planning to construction stage, which which is stage three to stage four, approximately, in terms of Reba. Is that right? Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, you, depending on the, the procurement method, you might do planning at stage two, and then or at stage three, and then do a two-stage tender or single-stage tender throughout stages three and four before starting on site in stage five. Okay, and so we're talking between two and three and and, and four effectively. And and when we were around, when we when we chatted a few episodes ago when we last met, you said uh, the phrase "discharging of planning conditions," and I wanted to I wanted to know in layman's terms. No more, no more riffraff from the architects. I need to know what this means. What, what, what is uh, discharging planning conditions in simple terms? So, quite simply, the, when you submit a, a project in at stage Reva stage two, it will be of a certain stage of development, and any uh, developer will know. Take if they buy a scheme off someone, or they t- or they build out someone else's project. There's a whole of load of issues to contend with where stuff isn't resolved properly. And so w- when you submit to planning, the, the level of information is not as developed and coordinated as you would need for construction, naturally. That also means it, pr- it probably hasn't been bottomed out to a level of detail that the planners are completely happy with. So, you know, the type of brick, the exact brick type may not be defined. The So rather than refusing a planning application of planning authority might grant permission but with these attached planning conditions some are required for approval before development commences some before above ground works some before installation of those materials and some prior to commencement uh, prior to occupation sorry so there's different types of plan conditions some are you have to do some are restrictive for example they could um, say that you, uh, you either have to submit the details of the cladding uh, type prior to its installation or some may say you're not allowed to start on site until um, you've done an archaeological survey um, or some or you can't do it may actually take away permitted development rights for the future of the building for something like that 
So there's different types of planning conditions, really. Okay. So discharging of planning conditions means that effectively you have done everything that the planning authority requires of you and you're you're good to go. But you can do them at, is that you have to have everything done pre-construction, effectively? No, no. So you can discharge them. Typically, you discharge them throughout the process. So prior to development, the word development in planning law is actually is quite a funny one. You're actually allowed to do demolition uh, before demolition doesn't count as development, usually. Uh, you have to okay. you, you have to get that confirmed from the local authority. But it is um, effectively it's effectively it's building the new construction. Well no you can, development. Well development would be the demolition of anything on site, uh, an existing building. But when you start to do excavation for, for or start doing foundations, then that is development. But then there's another type of condition which would be prior to above ground works. So prior to actually, you know, coming out of the ground. Uh, and so different, uh, different, you know, you you wouldn't want to. You'd have to do an archaeological survey or prove that there's no contamination in the ground prior to development. Prior to you know, sort of actually digging into the ground and starting certain things like that. They, they might ask one one ex- exception might be prior to demolition um, of anything, and they could say, for example, an asbestos survey might need to be submitted to local authority. We, we spoke last time about how we manage programme, how we manage time, how best to make you efficient. But how, so how, when you're transitioning away from, let's call it uh, planning, whether that be stage two or three into construction, that's what I want, to, I want to focus on with you today. What are the primary risks for you in that transition period? What are you trying to focus on most as an architect? Well, from uh, so going away from planning conditions or, or, to, or, or keeping that or talking about design generally? Design, well, both, but let's talk about design generally, where, where you're transitioning from planning into the construction stage. I suppose once, I mean, at a planning stage, you would have given your client, the developer or whoever it may be, an approximate area, an approximate from which they'll calculate a value and you'll have to deliver on that to a certain extent. But through the development of the design process from stages three through to four, technical design, you may find that the U-value doesn't work for the for the thermal performance of the building. You might need to thicken up the walls slightly so you might lose a bit of area, which is obviously a big risk for the, the developer. Losing GIA, effectively. Yeah. yeah. So there's always, you know, and there's, you know, that's something that hopefully has been thought about at the early stages. So allowing a big enough wall thickness or a big enough roof build up or whatever to actually allow it to be buildable i've taken on pre you know taken on a project from someone else previously where with a with a developer from a different architect and we're sort of rectifying all the other architects mistakes which is an absolute pain in the ass but i think but there are, yeah a risk going through the technical design that you're not going to achieve the design intent as set out in the earlier stages um as inevitably as you try to detail things out especially with um, building regulations updating over the last couple of years. A lot of architects haven't got used, a lot of developers haven't got used to the latest fire regulations, the improved uh, Part L regulations. So better thermal performance, better fire safety, both in terms of construction and uh, management of a building um, and factoring all that in. So it's, it's taking it step by step and developing it through. And and so that's it's quite an interesting example with the with the U values. So, and obviously GIA being incredibly important to the value of the development as you exit for the developer. How 
how much time and because obviously you wouldn't want to get to uh, technical design or construction stage design and then have to start reducing the GIA. Obviously, it ha happens in some instances. How 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 much time and effort goes towards that? at uh, stage two and stage three design to, to mitigate the risk effectively, or, or is it limited? People always want net to gross uh, figures and it's always driven on percentages. And it, whether it's whether that net to gross is worked out as um, net internal area to gross internal area, often developers also want to look at gross, the, the, the percentage to the gross external area. And that's where, as architects, we have to actually say at the beginning, look, you're going to lose out on that begin with because we need to allow for a 550 thick wall potentially depending on the what type of building it is and the and the u-value requirements in order so that later in the project we don't come back and i don't say to you well sorry we're going to have to increase the thickness of the wall and you're going to lose area now so and your nia comes down so what we want to do is make sure that the developer is fully understanding and from that point you know if we if we've got a big thick wall and we've allowed for that, all you can do from there is improve. If we can make efficiencies later on, or we can use a slightly better thermally performing material later down the line, or we can you know, work with the engineers, MEP engineers, structural engineers, to reduce any thermal breaks or anything like that, then potentially have the uh, opportunity to, to, to actually better the NIA that you've already signed up to. I was, I was going to ask, is, is there, what, what are the tactics that you would typically used to potentially expand the NIA what is is that you, you mentioned their thermal breaks and talking to the MEP consultant but do you have any working examples I mean a lot of people use brick block construction for small medium developments that has its benefits in in terms of being able to use certain materials cavity trays and things like that as um, non-combustible uh, sorry technically combustible cavity trays in between two leaves of masonry Nowadays, if you take away those second leaf of masonry, you can use an SFS system or stud framing and insulate in between that, which would increase the overall, better, or not, sorry, decrease, but, but improve the overall U value of the building. But it costs more. So there's a, you know, there's a, there's a balance that has to be weighed out with the QS and whether the sort of construction method that we're going to go for. Um, and that's, you know, getting that sorted early on in the project is important. And so SFS, SFS wall construction versus traditional, you get a better U-value with SFS, but SFS does cost a little bit more. But you might then increase the net, net internal area, um, which could end up, I guess, longer term, giving the developer a better outturn at sales stage, even if relatively minimal in terms of the actual NIA that you're increasing, you may actually get a little bit more in terms of your sale price. So it is, it is a consideration to be made. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, thinking about the construction method, I mean, if you're going to use, I mean, small to medium developments, I think they're bringing down the regular part B fire regulations, decreasing the uh, affected buildings from 18 meters to 11 meters. So there will be small and medium developers will increasingly find that the scale of buildings that they're working on are affected by the these regulations, and that can be anything from a you know having to have a stainless steel cavity tray to a non-combustible wheat pole or anything like that. It is kind of <laughs> it goes right down to the detail. There's a, a certain there's a number of exemptions from that list, but um, electrical items and 
Um, if you do have, you know, as I said earlier, if you do have two leaves of masonry, then actually you can have a cavity tray between those two leaves. Excellent. So effectively, but effectively, the Part B regulations that you mentioned are actually seeping down from the larger projects into the SME style developments that you mentioned. So more and more often, actually, are going to have difficulty with the fact that cavity wall buildup will be will be bigger and, and there's more responsibility. I guess because of Grenville. Yeah, yeah, and that ultimately, you know, this is where architects try to help out and sort of lead the design as lead designers. No by, way, no way. Architects by, don't by, ever try and help out. Yeah, by, you know, by actually, by having a, we are, as part of our professional responsibilities to have a good understanding of the building regulations and to advise our clients accordingly. Um, so that is something that, you know, we'd be bringing to the attention of the, the developer at the early stages of the project saying, well, this is bringing these concerns, highlighting these risks and yeah, bringing it to your attention. And, and, and just... With my original question on this, and we've kind of gone off piece, to be honest with you, but it's, it's quite interesting. So I've always wondered and always been a little bit unsure as to the transition between stage two and stage four. So where you have very simple planning level design and then you transition to the construction design and, and you talk, you talked about, I'm not sure about whether you value, like the you value might change, might realise that you need more build up. And that results in losing um, internal area. Is there any way to avoid that, or is it just that the at planning stage we're just doing a simple design, and we know that we're going to have to look at it at stage three, stage four? A good design team, including the architect, will should and will allow enough of a zone in the external wall. Taking that as an example, you know it will have been calculated that the stair core is long enough, big enough to actually get the flight of stairs that need to go from the 3.2 metre floor to floor, whatever it is. So, you know, it, it will, it should have been factored in. I have seen it numerous times where it hasn't been factored in. And ultimately that can mean you do have to go back to planning to change something, um, change the height of the building, change the slight form slightly via non-material amendment or, you know, material amendment. Okay. Interesting. Well, I want to talk to you about uh, material amendments and uh, let's do that after this break. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to share a message from our sponsor, C-Link. C-Link is software designed to streamline the process of subcontract procurement. It's a platform that helps SME developers and main contractors stay agile whilst replicating the commercial scale and savvy of large contractors. If you want to save a guaranteed minimum 5% against budget construction costs on your next project, head to www.get.c-link.com podcast to find out more. If you're driving or working out right now and didn't catch that URL, don't sweat it. We've included the link in the description box for this episode. Now, let's get back to the show. So I find myself, Hugo, constantly doubting myself when I speak to people on this podcast. I speak to so many different people. I'm thinking, am I understanding or am I misunderstanding? So I always feel like I'm asking a stupid question. But you talked about material changes um now explain to me what that is because material change could be something that is significant or it could be 
a change to the materials that are being used. What did you mean exactly by material changes? A lot of people mistakenly think that this is a material amendment to something to do with materials and a non-material amendment is anything other. But that's it's not the case. Non, a non-material amendment is, is an immaterial change, a very small change. It doesn't vary significantly from what is described in the planning permission. It doesn't breach any planning policy or conflict with any conditions in the in the permission, and it, it doesn't necessarily usually wouldn't involve in the significant move of the external envelope or including the walls, roof. Um, doesn't introduce or move windows too much. And you, what you would do, you'd get a set of drawings, mark them up, and set, send them via I think it's section ninety six A of the the town planning act um whereas a material alteration or material amendment is is something more substantial where there's a more significant changes might be a minor material amendment under section 73 but where it's considered to be a material amendment what you actually need to do for that is a new planning application in in essence um it's usually worth consulting with a, a planning consultant and and the uh, local authorities themselves into understanding the best route in order to work out the change to be as least disruptive to the scheme as possible. But yeah, you you shouldn't. Uh, it's best to avoid material amendments if you can because they take a long time. And in the in the event that a material amendment occurs, effectively it requires a, a new planning application. Is that right? Yeah, and this would be anything from you know changing the site area, changing you know changing the use class changing the significantly increasing the size of the project or um or, or something like that or changes that might uh could affect objections that might have been raised during the original proposal how do you manage those events when they do occur well you try you try not to really you try to get everything under either a minor material amendment um which allows an application an application to be made to to either some to remove some conditions or to change some joins or to, to do a slight material change but what you really want to try and avoid doing is having to do a whole new plan application because that just slams the brakes on onto the whole new onto the whole project which then means that the project brief at the outset has to be absolutely solid so you know exactly what you're delivering so that the material change doesn't happen so again that comes back to the, the front end i guess and, and ensuring that the project brief is, is is fully understood yeah i mean some some developers bigger developers might do might go in and they you know if they own the site you know they're not got the turnarounds required and the of the smaller scale projects they might actually put in an application for one thing because they know it can breeze through in planning and then and do a reasonably simple application and then might put it you could then go in with a secondary application or a material amendment to sort of increase the scale or to try and push it a little bit but if you if that doesn't go through then at least you have the other option to fall back on that isn't advisable i don't think and i think it's quite a risky game to play uh, but I think it's better to concentrate on the original application in the first place, spend a bit more time and effort trying to work with the planners um, with pre-application meetings and uh, local engagement and trying to, you know, get as robust a planning application as possible in the first instance would be much more preferable. Okay, that, that makes perfect sense. As with everything, it's all about front-end focus, managing things in the right way at the front-end talk about it a lot don't we but um that 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 all makes sense so for for you 
again, I'm going to talk about the transition from planning all the way through then to construction. What for you is the biggest challenge? So if you talk about planning, I think sometimes, I think we touched on it before. One thing is that actually, and actually I found it recently on a couple of projects, the statutory discharge period is eight weeks, I think. And we talked about deemed discharge of conditions, I think. And it's something that not many people are too familiar with. And it's... I'm certainly not. (laughs) It's not always... um, The planners don't really like it, but especially with COVID, pandemic, it means that a lot of the planners' actual resource in their own departments has been reallocated to dealing with um, COVID calls or something like that. It might mean they've got, you know, there's loads of stuff piling up on their desk. And that doesn't necessarily mean because a local authority is too busy to deal with your application that you should suffer. So I think in 2015, it was actually introduced maybe. And it's, uh, I think it's under the, via the way, the Infrastructure Act 2015, yeah, that's it. And the Town and Country Planning Order 2015 and you can you can say that after six weeks if you still haven't heard back from um the and it doesn't apply to every condition but say for the you know discharge i always talk about discharge of a brick type or something like that something which is rather minor it's not to do with you know contaminated land or something like that but there's no reason why the planning authority the local authority should be holding you up and preventing you cracking on with the project especially if it's prior to commencement prior to above ground works or prior to installation, you've got all brick, all the brickies ready to go and no one's said that you can use this brick. So you just submit a notice saying under the deemed discharge, uh, under this act, we please take this as notification of the deemed discharge of condition X in relation to the application. Is this your trick? It's not a trick. It's a little trick that not many people know about. <laughs> it's, certain, it's, it's definitely not a trick and it's completely allowed. It's not... The I planners, mean that in the nicest possible yeah. way. I'm not, the yeah. planners don't necessarily like it because you know they like to be they like to be considered and to to be thought of and to be made to feel important. Um, and they should be; they are very important. But you know, for something which they shouldn't also they shouldn't be holding you up on or costing you money for something which is avoidable. Yeah, progress means yeah. everything, doesn't it? Um, there, there, there was a reason why this act was brought into effect and that's because you know people i think were losing money and it was uh, preventing development and preventing construction and people were just being i was going to say that must the, the the logic is to is progress isn't it we all want to be developing we all want to be building etc yeah. etc et and i think after they still have the eight weeks to respond and they still you know they after that after after you've submitted the letter after six weeks they can still come back before the eight weeks and pass comment and even turn it down a uh, discharge of a condition application. But if they don't come back at all, after 14 days of the dis- deemed discharge notice, the condition is automatically deemed to have been approved. Uh, excellent. So this is that's really, really interesting. So I asked you what your biggest challenge was and how you, over- how you overcome it. So it, are you saying that your biggest challenge is engagement and communication with planners Obviously, they are stacked out, lots and lots going on. Yeah, I don't think just them. I think it's just engagement generally, getting moving forward with the design team, getting if if people are being evaded, although that tends to happen after tender. Uh, but, you know, engagement with the building control officer, local authority, engagement with any any statutory authority that you need to deal with prior to commencing on site. Like As a design team, architects often take 
the coordination role, lead designer role, or good, some architects prefer not to. But um, we, we we talked about that last time, didn't we? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, and with that role, and with a decent project manager, if there's a decent program in place, you don't want anything compromising that program. If you've got a start on the site date of April 2022. And the planners, oh, I keep on going back to the, the, the example of the planners, but it's not just them. Um, anyone's taking longer or, you know, that, than needed in, or they should be to sign something off. And that can also be the client. You know, if I've come to you with my stage three report and you've said, I want to start on site here and you're not signing it off and you're not agreeing, um, we haven't gone through all the risks, the project risks that are affecting it, CDM, management plans and, and everything like that. So, you know, anything that could compromise program is ultimately going to cost my client money at the end of the day. And cost you a lot of frustration. Yeah, no, that, so, and, and so in the context of the transition from planning to construction, the way you overcome that is with deemed discharged conditions and effectively tackling matters through that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, try, I try and say, if you can engage the planners in a amicable manner and get them on side and get them to respond to you and if they are being responsive then that's great and that's what you should be doing and this is a fallback option in order to to sort of resolve certain situations here. ensure you're progressing things time in a timely manner um and in accordance so that everything remains commercially viable and you get on with it i am not trying to say for a minute here you're not going to be you're not going to have all the planners coming after you saying we heard what you said i own the bill stop doing that yeah yeah no i mean so for example when i was building when i was building my house which i did the project management for and we tried to get the planners on site and this was prior to the pandemic even but they just um, they were just really busy and they weren't responding. And so in order to um, do one of the conditions, I think it was bike storage or something like that, um, which is so minor in, in the grand scheme of things, then we just have to say, right, well, it will, we're doing deemed discharge because we need to crack on. Does that then mean that it kind of red flags for them? Like, actually, this is a project that we need to pay attention to and focus on because we need to retain some control over it. Or is it just, oh, that's a minor issue, whatever. That was one of the final conditions. So luckily, we, I, I think it probably would red flag. It was too. Them. It was too late, was it? <laughs> but they weren't. They weren't very. They weren't very happy. I'll tell you that. Um, they came back. Have you work. got some kind of crazy bike rack storage system in your house, Hugo? I'm, I'm going to have to come around and have a look at it now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not. It's not too crazy. It's just all tucked away and all quite considered. Honestly, yeah, that, we'll, we'll, we'll pretend that's the case so no one comes around. Um, yeah. Awesome. Okay, well, look, I think that was actually really interesting. I think we understood. I've learned quite a bit from that and uh, understood things uh, really well. So thank you very much for coming in again, Hugo. It's always a pleasure to have you here. We'll be putting details of 1200 Works and Hugo in the podcast description for all of our listeners. If anyone has got any suggestions, wants to say hello, please do drop us a line. If anyone has seen Liam Curley, the mystery man, also we'd love to know where you've spotted him. But yeah, I think that's everything from from me for right now. And uh, until next week, have a great week. Thanks for coming in, Hugo. Cheers, Paul. Great to speak to you. And you. Cheers, mate. Take it easy.